All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside Writing. This show is presented by Gotham Writers, offering writing classes of all types and sizes. You can visit us online at GothamWriters.com. Before we get started, a few announcements. Firstly, the Gotham Writers Conference is officially open for registration. So if you want a peek behind the publishing curtain, this is the place to be. It's going to be October 15th through 17th. You can find that on the Gotham website as well. Uh, regarding today, at any point in the show, you can use the Q&A function down there on the Zoom dashboard to pose questions of our panelists. Uh, reminder that the sooner you get those in, the better. Um, so again, Q&A down there if you have questions for the panelists. Uh, there's also that chat function down there. That's just for general discussion among all of you wonderful participants out there. But if you have questions that you want to be that you want to have discussed on air, make sure you put those in the Q&A. Um, Lastly, if you want to get caught up on any episodes of Inside Writing, you can find them all on the Gotham Writers YouTube channel or on any major podcasting platform. And while you're there, be sure to like us, subscribe, leave a review. It helps to spread the word. So on to the subject of the day, which is page to screen adaptations, seeing your prose turn into a TV show or movie. Uh, we're going to start now and meet our panelists. So our first panelist, a developmental executive and developmental editor at Warner Brothers, Phil Cohen. Hello, Phil. Hey there. How's hey there, Phil. Thanks for being here, Phil. Uh, our second panelist, Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy winning writer and author of numerous titles, including the Dandelion Dynasty series and the short story collections, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories, and The Hidden Girl and Other Stories, which is going to be uh, adapted into a AMC series called Pantheon. Uh, that's going to be adapted soon. So that's Ken Liu. Hello, Ken. Hi, everyone. Hi, Ken. Thanks for being here. Thanks both of you for being here. So we're going we're gonna to start the questioning with Phil. Phil, if you just want to tell us a little bit about what your role at Warner Brothers is in the adapting process. Sure. So I work primarily with Warner Brothers, which is obviously like the sort of big feature division of Warner Media, but I actually work across Warner Media. I also work with New Line, which is another feature division that sort of I don't know how like you know hard and fast this is, but they generally tend to focus on things like horror and comedy. Um, just you know, they do big budget stuff, but it's not quite on the same sort of level as Warner Brothers. But I also work with our TV studio, which is Warner Brothers TV, uh, with whom they have like you know first look deals with all sorts of notable luminaries. Uh, and I also work with HBO Max, which is our uh, relatively new streaming service. So it's nice because if I like a book, and it, it, I primarily deal with books, but I also deal with basically anything that's not a script. So it's like comics, graphic novels, articles, podcasts, whatever, uh, because my colleagues in LA, they know how to do their job for one sort of very specific type of, like they know how to get a script from an agent or a manager or a producer or something, and then like, you know, do the thing that they do with that. And then any other industry that's not script based, they're just like, they don't know what the hell they're really like looking for in terms of context and stuff. So essentially what I do is I act as a liaison for, or like someone who translates the context of the publishing industry. Cause they're just like, yeah, this book sold, but is that meaningful? And I'm like, well, actually, yeah, you know, it sold for a lot of money or like, oh, it sold to this, you know, this niche genre publisher. I don't know that it's necessarily ever going to like set the world on fire, but they, they just don't really have that vernacular. Uh, so if I'm valuable, it's because I'm able to sort of traverse these two worlds of like, movies and TV and publishing and just sort of put things in perspective for them. Um, and, you know, essentially, if I like something, I sort of I'm always looking for like the biggest stuff, which is great, because that's kind of like my sort of innate taste. 
and that's the stuff that's usually most appropriate for Warner Brothers. But if I like something, but it's not necessarily like a big studio theatrical movie, especially in 2021, where all this stuff is like dramatically changed even before the pandemic and afterwards, it's like a completely different industry, essentially. Uh, then, you know, there's somewhere else I can put it. I can either, either make it a new line movie. I can make it, you know, it might be a series that's right for one of our writer producers at Warner Brothers TV, or it might be just like a series or a limited series or something that's great for HBO Max. So I have a lot of flexibility in where I put something if I like it. Awesome. And, and Ken, what has your experience, what role have you played in the adaptations of your work? Um, it's been all over the place. You know, sometimes um, I'm simply the underlying uh just the the author of the underlying IP, and I'm entirely hands off, and I don't I'm not involved uh, at all after the um, story or the book has been optioned. Sometimes I serve as executive producer. I then can mean any number of things: uh, commenting on drafts of the script, uh, actually participating in writers' rooms, and and directly working on the show or uh, the film, uh, things like that. So it's been all over the place. I've, I've really run the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. And Ken, I want to start off our, the investigation of, of adaptations on what gets adapted and what doesn't. So Ken, is there any indication to you what stories are more likely to get adapted versus other stories? Is there anything inherently more adaptable? You know, um, I have to say that in my personal experience uh, as an author, I don't really see that much of a pattern. Um, there are things I wrote which I thought were very tied into the zeitgeist, um, and then there was no interest. And there were also things I wrote that were very, I thought, niche, but ended up getting a lot of interest. Uh, it just there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of rhyme or reason to it. Sometimes stories that get a lot of attention um, don't really don't seem to be suitable for adaptation, at least uh, by the filmmakers. Uh, whereas things that I thought were completely really just experimental pieces uh, ended up getting picked. Um, so I don't know if there's a real pattern to it. Um, I, I think sometimes it has to do with being seen by the right people in the right venues. And that could mean anything. I mean, it could be a podcast, it could be a blog, it could be a free zine. So I would say if there's any pattern to it at all, it's just try to get your stories out there into as many different venues as possible because you never know which one will strike the right, you know, the right version of Phil who mm. sees it and says, hey, this might be interesting. <laughs> Phil, what about you? As somebody who's looking for these stories, how do you how do you choose? Is it all personal taste or are you looking for something that's intrinsically more adaptable? I mean, at the end of the day, again, like part of the reason that I'm assuming I have and have kept my job is because on some level I have taste that someone who is above me has determined is good taste. Uh, but it, but it, it's there's a few things. Number one, it's like a very interesting job because it's not like that of being a uh, like a book editor, where a book editor you're saying, okay, I really like this thing. I kind of see where the improvements can sit. I know exactly what I want to tweak and like you know around the sort of second half or whatever. For me, and you know, we do kind of like stay on the projects, but not as the primary development executive. So not the one sort of like working through the drafts with the screenwriter, hiring, you know, actors and directors and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it really comes down to like a thumbs up, thumbs down. So that's pretty easy because I don't really have to worry about like, this is good, but it could be perfect. And how can we make it perfect? It's like, is there enough here that it sort of rounds up to a thumbs up? And for me, there's this like very delicate balance of like, you want something that feels 
super fresh. Like I read so many like well executed, you know, maybe like lightly sci-fi action adventure kind of genre things that are like super competent and like finely executed. And then I'm like, yeah, but this is like, I just read something the other day. I was like, this is just like Logan crossed with like John Wick meets like, you know, Midnight Special, this Jeff Nichols movie. But I was like, I don't really know that that feels particularly fresh and exciting and especially like I'm thinking theatrical theatrical like I need something that feels like it's like 90 feet tall so you want something that feels familiar enough to an audience and honestly like to studio executives that they're not just like okay the whole thing takes place in this like weird void and someone's subconscious and everyone's made out of pure energy like I think if I tried to pitch something like that they'd be like yeah I appreciate the ambition but we need like human beings or you know uh, so you want something that's like tethered to like their understanding of what a movie looks like and feels like a big movie feels like. Um, but it can't just be like some crappy retread of something they've seen before. Like they need like a, you know, they need like a one, like I, the one I always go to honestly is The Martian because The Martian, yeah, we've seen space movies before. We've seen people like, we've seen like survivor stories where people have to survive. We'd never seen a movie about a guy who gets trapped on a distant planet by himself and has to get home by himself. Like, that's awesome. That's just like, a, you know, it's one sentence. It's easy. You can see what the movie is. It's very castable. You know, there's like a few boxes that you have to take. Like, is this castable? Like, if the whole cast is comprised of three-year-olds, that might be a tough sell. You know, like, studio executives like for movie stars to be able to be in movies, generally speaking. But it's also, what's nice is that because of the sort of you know, bifurcation of like this whole streaming, theatrical, whatever marketplace now, like it's not always the case that we have to think in these very specific terms because now, it, now is kind of an interesting time because anything could be a limited series, anything could be an ongoing series. And, you know, for the vast majority of Hollywood history, anything could be a movie, anything could be a series. And then there was that very sort of narrow window where streaming hadn't really taken off yet, but people were not really convinced about the viability of things that were not big tentpole theatrical movies. So like, yeah, it might be harder for theatrical movies to break out that aren't based on existing IP or some huge existing awareness kind of thing. Uh, but there's just so many different places to show something. There's like, you can have a Peacock show if you want. You can have something on like Roku Originals, formerly Quibi. You know what I mean? There's like all these, like, I'm sure like overstock.com is gonna start making content one of these days. Like there's just a million places you can put stuff if you want to. So Phil, where do you even look? Do you, because it sounds like you're, you, you find these, do you look at big venues? It's, do you look just across the board or where do you even start looking for stories? So the books that I am thinking about, worrying about reading, generally speaking on like a week to week basis are books that are on submission from literary agents to editors. So there, there is a genre of person of which I am one that is called book scouts which is like they kind of just have their ear to the ground in terms of the publishing industry very often they work for like foreign publishing like they work for like giuseppe's publishing company in italy and they're trying to like keep their ears on like what's going on in the u.s market in case that foreign publisher wants to has particular taste and like wants to know what's going on so they can acquire it to publish it in italy uh so like a lot of different foreign publishers employ you know different scouts so usually a scout's like repertoire will be made up of like a publisher in Italy, one in Australia, one in, Eng uh, you know, not England, but like, uh, so it's different with me where instead of foreign publishers, I essentially do that for a movie studio. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the most of the stuff that I'm worrying about, especially because there's so much volume these days that stuff is getting optioned earlier and earlier. And I'm sure Ken knows all about this. Like if I just sort of scouted stuff that was like post publication or at publication, like 85% of the good stuff would be gone, if not more. 
because it's like stuff is just getting spoken for so early now like and any value that we can bring is like our ability to get stuff before the sort of like joe schmo executives in hollywood get stuff you know what i mean like by the time the producers who i sort of talk to and beat off all day with a bat like by the time they get stuff and they're already discussing it and have a take on it like I need to have read it, have an opinion, and have like already told my colleagues in LA. Otherwise, I'm not good at my job. Mm-hmm. And Ken, I want to talk briefly about Good Hunting because it was adapted to Love, Death, and Robots. Um, how did that come about? Because that was originally published at, at uh, Strange Horizons, I believe. Um, do you think the, the size of the venue, because it's a pretty big venue, did that help? Or how, how did it come about that that story got picked for adaptation? You know, that one is a pretty... Um unique story really uh so uh, let's see what happened um i wasn't really actively pitching it in any way shape or form they came to my agent uh i don't know exactly how they found the story but they were interested in it they picked it and they reached out to my agent and said you know is this story available uh and so the deal was made um I think it does help to have it be freely available online. Uh, So it used to be that people were very suspicious of online publications, but I actually think, especially if you write short fiction, uh, being published online is really a very positive thing because um, it's available. It's just, it's going to be seen by a lot more people. um, And that just maximizes your chances. Uh, That story was published years ago. So, you know, it took many years before people were interested enough in it to, to come to me. Um, so, you know, once it's out there on the web, it will be around forever. Uh, and I know there are, um, this is actually something that, um, I want to speak to, um, it used to be that if you were, uh, writing, especially in genre, people told you that you couldn't make a living, uh, doing this unless you were writing and publishing novels, which, you know, sure, that might be true for a lot of people's careers. Um, I will say though, that, um, short stories in general, especially in genres like fantasy and science, science fiction, short stories generally make excellent plots for movie adaptations. They may not be turned into a TV show, but they work real, really well for movies because movies really need that very succinct, compact, self-contained story. Uh, novels, uh, The Martian aside, don't tend to make great movie adaptations or not easily because they're very sprawling. They're all over the place. So it is actually very possible um, if you write short stories to get lots of opportunities for adaptation uh, into movies. Um, At least that's been my experience. So uh, if you write short stories and a lot of the venues for publication these days are online, um, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's uh, it's actually a pretty, pretty good way to get exposure and to, um, see what would happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then how did that experience with Good Hunting and, and with that being that, how did that differ from the, the new series you have coming with AMC, AMC Plus? Was that something that you had a, a more of knowledge going into that didn't just come out of nowhere? Right. Those are very different projects. So in Good Hunting's case, they came to me and they had a very clear vision of what they wanted to do. Um, and I was very hands off with it. I, I basically said, OK, that sounds good. Go for it. Uh, and they just went up and did their thing, which was awesome. I ended up talking to the person who did the script ad- adaptation uh, and we had some good, great conversations. Uh, uh, but I, I had zero input creatively into the adaptation, which is fine. Um, uh, the AMC project is very different in that case. Um, 
my agent and I actually packaged a set of stories together. These are stories in my second collection. Um, I had a vision for how it could be turned into, um, you know, an interesting uh, TV show. Um, uh, so I wrote up some, uh, I, I put together a package basically explaining what my vision was for the show. And then my agent took it out. Um, and then um, the folks at AMC, you know, uh, read it and thought it was interesting. And then they decided to set it up. Um, and in that case, I actually had a lot of input and, and a lot of um, participation with the showrunner and the writer's room. They actually invited me to be part of the writer's room. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. It was, it was really fun to be an executive producer and to actually have something to do with the show and to put your ideas in and to help craft uh, the ultimate vision. So I, I really enjoy that. It's a very different kind of experience, but, you know, I think they somehow, they, they sort of represent two extremes of what would happen um, uh, in terms of your own creative involvement as the author of the underlying IP. Um, more than that, you would have to be attached as a person to do the adaptation yourself, um, which, you know, I, I'd be happy to do too. But so far, I haven't done that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's the range of the involvement. Mm -hmm. And Phil, is that in your experience, how, how much do the writers of the IP, how much, how much do they have to do with the final product being produced? Well, it depends obviously on a project to project basis, but what Ken was saying actually, I, I, there's this phenomenon, I don't even know if it's a phenomenon, but what's, what started happening in the last few years, and it sounds like he sort of experienced this to an extent, a lot of uh, publishing people not necessarily because they sort of like in, eventually want to work entirely in movies and TV, but like there now is this kind of like interesting trajectory for people in publishing or, or authors to sort of make their way into film and TV. And the one I always think about was Tom Parada because when Damon Lindelof was like, hey, I want to make The Leftovers, uh, I don't know if he was necessarily a co-creator, but he was, he was in the writer's room and he had a say and he was, you know, I think he was in the writer's room all three seasons and he, he kind of like made his, his, himself known there and then by the time he wanted to adapt his own book mrs fletcher they were like i think they felt a little more comfortable because they were like all right you already worked on the leftovers you're not some like unknown entity and they're like all right go make the show create it show run it and even when like uh when david simon was making the deuce a few years ago at hbo he he specifically sought out uh female novelists to put in the writer's room so i think he put lisa lutz and uh, megan abbott in the writer's room for the deuce and and what you're seeing now is not only that where a lot of like authors are, are starting in writers' rooms and then you know adapting stuff themselves, you're also kind of seeing what the hell is I just about to say? Oh man, I lost it mid-sentence. No, that's well. If, if it comes back to you, just cut me off, um, and we'll go back to that. But um, I did want to ask you, what what? How do you decide like when you're seeing this story or this book? Is it come back to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I was going to also say is you're very often seeing, uh, like, let's say uh, an, an author has a book on submission for film and TV, and because his, his or her agent realizes they have some sort of leverage because there's going to be a buzz or demand for this book from producers and studios and all this stuff, what you're starting to see now is very often that agent will attach that author not only to produce but to adapt uh, and and they know that because they have all this leverage, because they have this in-demand exciting property that people want a piece of, 
even if they don't necessarily end up writing the final draft that you'll see on screen or end up being like the final credited screenwriter, it's kind of a, you know, not a win, 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 but it's like the author gets to sort of like have their hand at shaping at least a version of the thing that could be the movie or the TV show. Uh, the studio, you know, pays them for a draft that they kind of know that they might or might not use, but it's like not, you know, game changing amount of money, generally speaking, because a lot of these people are like, publishing people and they're not like David Kep, who's like the most established screenwriter in the universe or something like that. So it's something we're seeing more and more of where it's like, you know, if you have like a crazy book auction going on for film and TV, the agent will be like, oh yeah, so-and-so author is actually attached to produce and they want to adapt it themselves. And I think partly that's because they want to sort of protect the integrity to the best of their ability of the book that they wrote. But I think it's sometimes used as like a, a jumping off point as a way to do more stuff in film and TV as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And, and Phil, how do you decide it? Because now there's TV shows, there's movies, there's miniseries. There's, how do you decide what form these adaptations go into? Well, it's interesting. Ken was talking about like the fact that generally speaking, novels aren't ideal for features, which is true sometimes, but it's like there's books that seem like worlds that you would want to live in that you could like hang around in for a hundred hours or something like that. And like that seem like there's sort of more stuff beating under the surface of what's in the book and roots we can explore that aren't necessarily there on the page. And then like, for example, the book that I just read this morning before I joined this call was like, had a beginning, had a middle, had an end. Like, I guess you could make a limited series out of, make a 10 hour show out of that. It wouldn't be the most scintillating episode six and seven that I've, you know what I mean? That's usually, I honestly always think about it that way. I'm like, if episode six and seven would suck, not worth it, it's a movie. You know what I mean? Like you need something that's sort of like rich and sort of constantly changing and like, really has a lot going on to make it worth an ongoing or limited series. Mm -hmm. And Ken, I want to get back to your experience in the writing room again for these adaptations of your work. Uh, how much stuff was changing from your original story? And, and what was it, like? I assume you had input on what was changed and what stuck? You know, uh, this is how I view it. Um, you know, I'm not saying this is the right way to view it, but it is one way. Um, some writers, uh, fiction writers view their fiction as just sort of the the raw input into something final. Like they they view themselves as storytellers first and foremost, and the the ultimate vision is the story. So when they publish a short story or a novel, that's just that's just one step in the ultimate goal of getting that story out there. So they're really uh, invested in maintaining that vision all the way through to the end. So they're sort of writing for the screen, even if they were writing short story or novels. Um, and I think that's pretty awesome. You know, some writers were meant to write for the screen ultimately. So if they end up working Hollywood, it's sort of perfect. Uh, this is just one step there. Um, I'm not one of those writers. Uh, my, in my view, um, when I'm choosing to work in the medium of, of, you know, fiction that you read on a page, that that is the medium I'm invested in. So I, I write very differently when I'm writing for Audible. You know, it's an audio format. I write very differently when I'm writing for an online publication versus a printed publication. I I, I really focus on the medium and, and, and try to do the most I can with it. So I don't particularly care about the screen adaptation when I'm writing my story. So um, to me, the thing that I end up publishing is the thing. That, that's it. That's the final thing. It's not just one step in some long process. I'm committed to the artifact as it is. So that frees me up somewhat. So in that case, when the adaptation process starts, I can say, I've 
I'm already done. Like the thing that I wanted to do, it's finished. So now there's something else that they want to make based on my thing, but it's a separate thing, entirely separate, not connected really, except in the most superficial way. Uh, it shares the same title and perhaps some underlying ideas and maybe the same sort of thematic soul, but it's really a different thing. Um, and in that case, I can either take a hands-off approach and say, you know, I like the work of these uh, filmmakers. I, 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 I'm just going to let them do their thing. It's going to be awesome, whatever they do. Uh, it may not be anything like what I would have done, but it's a different piece of work. Uh, my story is still there. They haven't taken it away from me, so I'm happy. Or if I were to participate in the process, I would say I'm not actually trying to sustain the vision of my original story. I'm trying to do something entirely new now. I need to throw my old story away. I'm here to create a new thing with these new creators. We're on a team and we're gonna make something new. So that's my vision. So I know that's not true. There, there are authors who really are very committed to carrying their vision across and they're really into the control stuff. I, I may be sort of an outlier. I just don't particularly care about control. Um, in fact, um, I. I would say, I don't care about whether an adaptation happens or not. If an adaptation happens, great. And I would view that as an entirely separate new artistic endeavor that I'm joining in on. The thing that I wanted to do, it's already done. No one can take that away from me. I'm now joining a new team to create a new thing. So all that aside, I would say, um, I wouldn't even view it as changing things. I would just view it as I, I view myself as, you know, uh, just a, uh, one member of the adaptation team. I come to this, I read the underlying material, and I say, who's this Ken Liu guy? Whatever. He's out of the room. He's, he's gone. I'm taking this material. I'm working with the team. I'm making something new out of it. That's my approach. So I wouldn't even say it's changed. I just I disregard the original story entirely uh, if I'm involved with the adaptation. I think that's fascinating. So, so even if... Has there ever been a point where somebody wants to do something that you feel like doesn't fit in the world or is it just completely, you know, we're going with it? You know, when that happens, um, uh, I, I can't say it has actually happened uh, with one of my stories. Uh, I mean, look, I've, I've gone through adaptations where things were really wild. They, they would change the setting, the, the, the entire, sometimes things would be reversed. Uh, what I wanted, what I wrote in the story was, was nothing like, what would end up in the script. But I always try to go in there with a collaborative mindset. I say, look, this underlying material was sold to the team to make a show. And the showrunner is the one with the vision or the director or the script writer is the one with the vision. And I'm part of a team. We're supposed to figure out what is, what is this thing we're trying to make? Um, what is it that we're trying to do? What, what is the most compelling, interesting story we can tell using these raw materials we've been given. Um, and, you know, when I approach it that way, I, I really haven't found a case where uh, something that they wanted to do was something that I just couldn't live with. Uh, because I'm not, I, I really try to keep to the mindset that the thing I wrote is done. It, it, is, it is finished. No one could ever take that away from me. So I'm doing something new now, and I'm doing it on a team. I really have to just keep that in mind. And just hasn't bothered me when things change. Mm -hmm. Phil, uh, when you're adapt or when you're looking at a story to adapt, obviously you're looking at the story elements, but are you also thinking in terms of setting and what actors you can attach to it? Is that part of the process? Oh yeah, big time. 
like I, I mentioned before, you know, if you have a, a story that all the main characters are pure energy or all the main characters are a bunch of babies, like that's, that's tricky because I don't know how valuable movie stars are in 21 because I feel like now the property itself is often the movie star. You know what I mean? Like people are not going to see Star Wars because John Boyega and Daisy Ridley are starring in it or even Adam Driver. They're going because they're Star Wars fans. You know what I mean? Uh, so I don't know like if there's an actor maybe besides like Leonardo DiCaprio who like literally gets people to go see that movie that he is in because he is the person that is in that movie. Uh, that was a thing like 20 years ago and sort of before. And I don't know if it's as much of a thing anymore. Um, but when I'm looking at a story, I'm looking at like, who could I cast in a story? And oftentimes if the answer is like, well, the main character is 15, that's tricky because there's no 15 year old movie stars around. What I try to avoid doing is getting in this mindset of like, oh, the main character is not a 34 year old white guy. That means that this is somehow like lower down on my list because I kind of always have this philosophy in like the movie industry that there's an example of every kind of thing working. And what I mean by that is like, when my big fat Greek wedding came out, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, like I don't necessarily know that there was a precedent for like a very strongly ethnic, like family comedy with no movie stars that was made independently, like coming out and making $250 million. And then it came out and everyone was like, well, of course it did. Cause it was funny and great, blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, am I necessarily always going to let the fact that like, you know, uh, like an indigenous 13 year old is the main character of the story. If it's like saying something unique and fresh and exciting and creative and feels really vital. No, I'm not. But I also am not the person greenlighting these movies. And I do have to be a little pragmatic and cynical and realistic about like what it actually takes to get a movie made, especially a theatrical movie. And that's actually why streaming is great. It's because we do have a lot more latitude in terms of like, saying, hey, this is maybe not a movie that like a huge critical mass of America would like rush out to opening weekends to see in a theater. But like, if it's good enough and word gets around, which it often does, I would say not always, but often, uh, then if it's something we really believe, then that's something that might be a more of an option for streaming or TV where that kind of stuff is like thriving and like the more the better. So Phil, what is the process? So you see a story you want to adapt do you sell it on concept or do you start turning it into a script and then sell it once you have a script? Well, so the sequence of events is, let's say I find a book. Like, let's say the book I read this morning, I love, I think that this thing should be a movie. Uh, if the book is not like actively on film and TV submission, I would figure out who the agent is. Usually most authors who are of some sort of renown have like a film and TV person that looks after them. Uh, and, you know, usually I have like a record of who that is. I'll hit them up. I'll be like, hey, I just read this book. I loved it. What's the deal with it? And what I'm doing when I'm doing that is I'm trying to get a sense of like, are they about to go out with it? Are they like super excited about it? And they're convinced it's going to be just like a blockbuster and they're going to get like 80 gazillion dollars for it. Like, I'm just trying to kind of get a read on what the situation is. Um, and that actually always plays into my strategy of when I option something is as important as how much I'm paying or what I'm optioning even. Uh, because a lot of times there's this, there are these two very intense periods of time around optioning a book. One is like when the initial publishing buzz is going on where like the book is like, has like seven publishing houses vying for the rights to publish it. And everyone's like losing their mind and it's made its way over to LA and everyone's freaking out over there. And the film and TV agent is like, 
hitting people away. And she's like, no, you, I, and, and then, so there's that like first initial intense period. And then let's say, you know, Random House or whatever requires the book. And then for whatever reason, a deal doesn't happen or the author says I want to wait or the agent says I want to wait. And then there's this sort of like quiet period of like a year where the book's been acquired by a publisher, but hasn't yet come out. But maybe it's like been five months since I read it initially and it, like I can't get it out of my head and I still really like it. And I'm like super excited. I'm like, I think when that book comes out, it's going to hit or it's going to like, you know, it fits this particular, checks this box. And that's kind of the quiet period. And that's my favorite time to option a book because first of all, it's like, it's like this real sort of gut check because you're like, hey, the book does not have any sort of external buzz or craziness going on, but it like really stuck with me, which feels like a little more pure in a way. But as you sort of get closer to publication, let's say the great reviews start coming out or, you know, Entertainment Weekly writes one of their like very random, like, here's this book that's coming out that's very exciting kind of things. And then my boss's boss is like emailing her and she's emailing me and like, what's the deal with this? Do we have an opinion on this book? So that's when stuff gets crazy again. So I love optioning stuff during that quiet period. And you can also get it for cheaper because it's not like, it's not, it's falling during sort of one of those lulls in the, in the like crazy bidding war kind of activity. Mm-hmm. So I, you asked me like, how does something, I mean, so I'll option it. One at one of those times, whether it's like at the initial publishing frenzy when the book comes out or in the quiet period. Um, and then generally speaking, I mean, my my colleagues in LA are really great about sort of keeping me in the loop with like, which writers we're talking to and which filmmakers, but like what they do is they're the ones that like hire a writer is generally the first call or like hire a producer, someone to like shape it over there by themselves and then like bring it to the studio when it's ready to be seen. Um, and then, you know, they hire a writer, they hire a producer, they look at the draft, they say, this draft needs more work. Do we have another step with this writer? Okay, let them do another draft. Do we have any more steps? No, we don't have any more steps with this writer. We're out of steps. So let's go find a new writer or this needs a new writer because it needs new energy or a new perspective. Uh, and then once they have a draft, they like, you would assume the battle is over and it's like, okay, let's go make a movie. And then we got to go take it to the chairman of the studio who's like blustery and it's like, no, you need to lower the budget by $12 million or you have to cast this guy that I just read an article about two days ago who I'm obsessed with and I'm not open to anyone else besides this one guy. Uh, it takes a lot to get a movie made. <laughs> Ken, from, from your point or from your side in the writer's room, are you involved at all in these things? Like, and obviously, you know, who gets casted is probably out of your control, but are you thinking about those things? Are you thinking about setting? Are you just thinking about developing a script that works on the screen? Um, I actually never think about casting and things like that because, you know, not only because it's outside of your control, but, but I think it actually doesn't serve the story well when I do that. Um, I really believe this is a collaborative process. And I, I think Shonda Rhimes is one of the a person who I, who I got this from. She said that, you know, when you're doing a show, if you're writing for a show, you should never precast your characters because you really have to let the actor shape the role. Uh, you're going to discover that, you know, the, the casting process will change the way you think about a character, the, the the actor will come in and they'll give their interpretation. And then you're going to have to shape your uh, perception, understanding the character based on that performance. So the, the less you can commit to very specific visions about what your characters are like, the better it is for the show, because you leave room for collaboration like that. Um, so yeah, that's been my experience. I try to avoid doing I try to avoid doing the thing where, you know, writers direct from the typewriter. I, I try to avoid anything of that sort. I, I'm there to create, um, you know, to, to help shape uh, a format, a Bible, a script. 
that will ultimately then be taken by the filmmakers to paint to a movie. I, I'm very aware of the fact that what I'm doing is an interim step, uh, and I keep that in mind. Uh, I, I so so that doesn't it doesn't bother me, and I don't have control over that because it's it's not my place. Mm-hmm. All right, so I have a bunch more questions. I want to get to some Q&A from the audience because we've got some good questions coming in here as well. So this first question, Ken, I'll start with you. And Phil, if you have anything to add, jump in as well. But Ken, would you advise for or against or neutral having short stories free to read online while querying a novel with the same story world and characters? Um, I think it depends on the situation. I mean, uh, I think there are situations where that kind of um, uh, holding back on your great, explosive, awesome, original story and and driving up the interest behind the scenes is to your advantage. And sometimes it's not. I, I can only speak to my own personal experience, which is, again, I have always been very successful by saying yes to every publication opportunity whatsoever. There are some writers who are very careful about not having their stars being available in as many places as possible. I, I'm not like that. I prefer to have it be available in as many places as possible. And that has generally brought me way more opportunities than whatever has been lost. Although, of course, there's a confirmation bias here. I don't know what I've lost as a result of being so open. Uh, but the fact is, I've had a very successful career as a result of being published all over the place um, and accepting um uh, I mean, I'm sure I leave some money on the table because when you do keep your things exclusive, you can ask for a lot more money when you do grant publication opportunities. But that I've made way more um, in terms of just general satisfaction, joy, connection with readers and uh, small, interesting, quirky opportunities as a result of being publishing everything under the sun. So, you know, if you enjoy the career I've had, you know, I, I have to say my decision seems to have helped it. So that's what I would say. Phil, anything to add to that? A couple of little things. I think a lot of people a few years ago in my industry were very skeptical about like, not the viability of short stories, but like, you know, this idea that short stories would be like a super competitive kind of form. And I think the last few years have like completely annihilated that perspective. Like, there, you know, in addition to Ken, there's obviously like a bunch of people who's careers honestly have just been based around short fiction like it was this dude a few years ago who kind of to me to me maybe this was the case I think it was the case for a lot of people where he just kind of came out of nowhere his name was Matthew Baker uh, and he just had a bunch of short stories that sold for so much money for film and it was like each one sold for more than the previous one and it was like this crazy progression where he he just kind of came out of nowhere like his first story was like everyone was like oh this is interesting I think in his case he was very effective at like writing these stories that kind of functioned as like the first act of a screenplay in prose form that had like fun hooky premises uh and like netflix bought one of them with matt reeves attached to produce life sentence i think uh someone else bought another but like the the money that he was getting for these things was like nuts and in his case if i'm remembering correctly the stories were very they weren't like guarded but i think he was published in like a university literary magazine or something that was like pretty it wasn't just like on the website very easy to find but i've also seen examples where i know for me personally let's say i get a novel submission 
from like a really cool sounding promising author that I'm excited to check it out. And when the literary agent or whoever sends it to me sends it, they, they include like, oh, here's a story of their blah, blah, award-winning short story. I'm someone that just likes having more information than less because I, I think sometimes it helps me feel a little more confident in my decision that like, okay, this person wrote two good things as opposed to this one thing. It, you know, it wasn't a, a fluke. It wasn't just something that they like, their first at bat, they knocked it out of the park and everything they're going to do after that is just like going to be a piece of crap. Like it just generally makes you feel a little more confident and warm and more secure in your liking it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that Matthew Baker did it with having everything sort of guarded away. And, but for me, when I see more, 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 and if I like that person already, it makes me like it even more. Mm -hmm. Next question, Phil, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, so far, this seems like movie executives come to the writers and agents. Is there anything writers and agents can do from their side if we're interested in having our stories be made into movies and TV shows? Yeah, it's really interesting. So with movies and TV, it's weird because there's kind of this, it's not even a barrier to entry. It's just like there's not really a trajectory that's very, I say entry level, but what I mean by that is like it's very tough to like be someone who wrote a really good book in like PDF form that's sitting on your computer and be like, all right, who do I hit up to turn this into? There's not really like a way to do that because most agents and managers and producers don't really accept unsolicited materials. All this like network of, you know, people just sort of communicating with each other. It's like, oh, did you read this thing? I have this thing. I have, you know. But what I tell people all the time is like, that's not really the case in publishing. Like not, not to say it's half, but it's like a good percentage of literary agents, many of whom you like the work of and are super excited by the idea of working with, not all of them, but many of them accept unsolicited materials like off the slush pile. And that's like their primary way of signing new clients. So uh, what I always try to sort of convey is this idea that like, while it's very, very tough as an amateur screenwriter or aspiring, aspiring screenwriter to go from like nobody to person with a credited produced work, because there's just not really like a trajectory that people know about that makes sense. There is that thing for publishing where you couldn't be, can be someone with a PDF. You can just submit, you know, a perfectly worded query letter to like the perfect fit agent. It's, it's obviously easier said than done. And it's not like by, you know, you're gonna, it's gonna happen every time and work beautifully. But it's like, there is that thing where you can go from somebody who's like aspiring to a published author via this very sort of specific time worn, time tested process, you know? Mm -hmm. And then can that's when people will start paying attention on the film and TV side is once mm -hmm. you figure out publishing. Mm -hmm. Ken, do you have anything to add to that? Ways to make, to sort of set yourself up to have your stuff adapted? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, some of these are very common sense, but I, I think they're worth repeating. So one is, um, obviously, <laughs> everything that Phil and I have been saying, you have to sort of preface all of this with, uh, with the idea that a huge, huge, huge amount of this process is based on luck. You just, you have no control over it. It's entirely luck. Uh, what someone might be interested in and then the things that have to come together to make an ad adaptation happen. I mean, it's just, it's so random. It just, if you really try to engineer all that, I think it's very hard to do if not impossible. So just remember luck does govern a huge amount of this just entirely outside of your control. But all of that aside, there are things you can do to maximize your chances. I mean, one is making sure that you have literary and uh, film agents who really believe in your work. Um, so I'm very lucky in that my literary agent and also my uh, manager uh, out in LA are both 
very, very good advocates for me. Um, I, I tend to not to be someone uh, who writes these buzzy books that generate a huge amount of interest on submission. So I wouldn't have been well served by one of the large agencies that do the bombardment submissions everywhere that Phil was talking about. Um, I tend to always sit out of that sort of thing. What tends to work for me, though, is I put my stories out there and they gain fans over time, very slowly, um, but they build up. Uh, they get published in prestigious literary journals. They get translated into foreign languages. They get seen by other people. Over time, when my manager and my agent feel it's the right time, they come to me and they say, okay, so there are, which of your short stories do you see as potentially interesting if, if used as the basis for uh, an adaptation? Can you write an author statement or some sort of vision statement to help people see what you mean by that. And I put together a submission package like that, which then my manager uses to submit to folks that she specifically have thought would be interested in reading. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, that is not the sort of thing that the vast majority of authors get. I'm very lucky that my manager does that sort of work for me because you know it's, it's very time consuming for her to do this kind of work, but she really believes in my work. Uh, and I would say the vast majority of my opportunities uh, when it's not origin source for me have come from the sort of effort where she goes out, takes my package and tries to approach the right people who will respond to it. So that happens. Um, and many times these stories have been published years ago. It just took that long for the world to catch up to them, you know, whatever, whatever that means uh, for, for, for the vision to be understood. So that's one way. Um, and another way that you can sort of make these things happen is stuff that I mentioned. So um, all things being equal, being out there on more venues is better than on fewer venues, in my view. Uh, I get my stories out on podcasts like LeVart Burden Reads and things like that, and, or NPR. And these are venues that are not traditional fiction publishing venues. But, you know, I managed to get um, a, um, uh, a stage adaptation opportunity as a result of having my story featured on an NPR because it turns out theater people listen to NPR. Uh, so it's kind of cool. Uh, and uh, I've had my story published overseas in all sorts of places. And I would say another thing we do is just try to be kind and available and as much of a human being as possible to people who are helping you. So I, I try to be as good a person and, 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 and a really easy author to work with with my overseas publishers. I always say, you know, your translators can email me directly or even call me if they have any questions. You know, if you want me to do publicity, I'm, I'm totally there. If you want me to write special material for you, I, I'll totally do it. And as a result of that, my foreign publishers often will bring me opportunities for adaptation in their countries. Uh, I've had opportunities in Japan as a result of having good relationship with my publisher. Um, and then finally, just the, the last thing I would say is um, always be kind, you know, People sometimes come to me and ask about um, what things do I think are interesting to adapt. I actually have a policy of never talking about my own work whenever that comes up. I always try to recommend other people's work. And I just feel like um, when I make opportunities for other people, um, it's, just, it's just good. It feels good to do things like that uh, when you're not out there trying to sell yourself constantly. I, I, so whenever people come to, to me and say, hey, you know, you had your ear pretty close to the ground, 
this is what we're looking for. Are there, is there anything that you can recommend? I always recommend other people's work. I never recommend my own. And uh, that has, uh, to me, also worked out because it's, it's cool to be able to help someone out. And, and then ultimately, um, you know, it, it always comes around. People will help you uh, when they know that you're, a, you're someone who, who is out there trying to make the pie bigger um, for everyone. So that's what I would say. Thank you. Uh, and next question, Phil, is for you. Uh, I sometimes hear about an author selling film rights only to see the film idea get filed away in the Smithsonian warehouse of movies. So it disappears. How, how often does that happen? So often, the vast majority of the time. Uh, I would say I started doing this job seven years ago. Of the stuff that I have seen optioned for film, TV is a little different because they it's not as hard to make a TV show. And I think there's just more buyers and stuff. Uh, there's like a lower bar. But for, for film, the stuff that I've seen optioned for film, of which there's been so much, 5% has gotten made, maybe. I mean, who's to say, like, if we check back in in 25 years, if that'll still be the case, because often stuff kind of like sits around. But a lot of stuff, honestly, is bought or optioned for film prior to publication, because the person who's optioning it is kind of like waiting and seeing. They're like, oh, I have, I don't know. I feel like no book ever works anymore. Like it's like, oh, maybe this book will work. Maybe this book will sell a gazillion copies. And it's it's like, I don't know what is actually work. I feel like nothing works anymore. Like some, you know what I mean? Like books are selling, but like, it's just, it's harder to have like huge sort of like crossover fiction in that way that feels like sort of big and scopey or whatever. Um, and I don't just mean like people throwing planets at each other. Like one of the books that I optioned was this book, City of, City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, and part of the reason that I optioned, obviously, Elizabeth Gilbert's like a big best-selling sort of pedigreed known entity. But I was like, this just feels like the kind of thing that should be in a movie theater. Like it's, you know, big and let's put on a show, 1940s, girly, pink, splashy, like feather boa, like musical numbers, like theater energy, you know what I mean? So it, it just felt like appropriately scopey. What is a stupid word to use? But uh, yeah, just even then, like we're having trouble because it's like, okay, but like, even though the book was a bestseller and even though the script is like pretty solid and we have like Michelle Ashford, who's like a great, she ran Masters of Sex on Showtime. She's like a known entity who like did a pretty great job. It's like, but does this feel, the like that's the question everyone's asking. Like, does this feel theatrical enough? Which I understand, like, you know, everyone has very high standards, especially in 2021, because of how sort of like weird the theatrical landscape is right now. We'll see sort of how things shake out in the next, I don't know, 12 to 18 months. But it's like, even before that, it, it's so hard to get any movie made. Nuts. But for example, I, when I was, I was at Sony before, I was at Warner Brothers, and one of my favorite things that I optioned was this Blake Crouch book, Dark Matter. And that's like, my taste to a T, that's like one of my, you know, that's like, if you looked up, what is Phil's favorite kind of book in the dictionary? I don't know what you would do that, but it would probably be Dark Matter. Uh, but we like labored for years and years to try to actually get this thing made. We had a director attached, they went out to a bunch of actors, we had like a bazillion drafts of the script, uh, and it never ended up get, getting made. But now, I think Sony TV took it to Apple, where it's going to end up as a TV show, which is like the perfect place for it. You know what I mean? Like that's, it should be that, so. These things always have a second life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, not always. Next question, I'll, I'll pose it to both of you, but Ken, I want to start with you. 
Uh, can you speak to the pros and cons of deciding what format to write in? More specifically, is it better to bend your writing into a script format from the beginning if you want it to ultimately end up in film? I mean, if you want to be a script writer, then you should write a script. That's what I say. Um, you should actually go and write scripts and then try to sell your scripts on spec. Uh, I, I think that's perfectly respectable. There's no need to go round it out. I mean, if that's what you want to do, then do that. Um, I will say that um, I, there are certainly many, many uh, examples of writers who believe that their vision was very difficult to for people to see um, as a script initially. So they wanted to go through the publishing route of writing a novel or a short story to prove basically that their idea works before approaching Hollywood. You know, once you've had the track record of a successful novel or story out there, you can say, look, you know, this idea actually works even. Uh, so why don't you hire me to do it? So that's perfectly fine too. Um, I, I would just say that whatever, if, if your goal ultimately is to turn it into a film, that's really what you want to do. My personal view is then you should start by writing a script. I mean, at least that's how I view it. You know, I, I'm in a position in my career now where I am being asked to do that. And I find it much more fun to just think of original script ideas and actually do the script rather than trying to, you know, twist it into a short story or a novel, uh, only then to have to then go through the process of, of twisting it back into a script. I mean, if the, if the vision in my mind is a film, then write the film. That's, that's my advice. Phil, what about you? Do you think it's easier to get a book, to write a book and then have it made into a film or just write the film? I kind of tend to agree with Ken only because if you are so, like, there's a lot of, not even failed screenwriters, like successful screenwriters who try their hand at writing novels and I read them and sometimes I kind of get the sense that they're like, well, this will sell. This is like something I can do right now that'll like, you know, I have a known name and maybe I can get a movie greenlit or maybe I can't get these sort of high profile studio assignment jobs, but I can sell a book because I know how to tell a story. I'm just always someone who's like very into like authenticity and like sincerity. And I feel like sometimes those things come across like crass format experiments where they're just like, yeah, anyone can write a book. I'll write a book. I know how to, you know what I mean? Like, it, I don't know. I'm just like, do the thing that you actually want to do. Don't just like try to like backdoor your way into some commerce. Mm -hmm. So before we sign off for today, I want to give you both a chance to tell people how they can find you if you're online, social media, or if you have anything you're excited about that you want to promote, uh, anything coming out. Um, Phil, let's start with you. Sure. So actually, in addition to uh, being a studio executive, because of the fact that my job sort of has some limitations in terms of like being able to like work directly with authors and shape stories. A while back, I actually started doing developmental editing. So I work with authors one on one. Uh, usually they'll have like a first draft or something. And it's, you know, usually some it doesn't necessarily have to be this, but it's like stuff that kind of exists in the world where it like could hypothetically be a movie or a TV show, just because I think that's why they choose to work with me in the first place. But it's like, I love being able to like have that sort of involvement that I don't necessarily have in my day job, because like I said, it's so sort of based on, uh, you know, thumbs up with thumbs down. So I'll actually in the chat, I'll give this little, I don't have like a newsletter or anything, but I'll, I'll, 
put this little Google form. So if you want to reach out, you can reach out. I don't have anything to send, so I won't send anything. But maybe one day I'll have a cool newsletter. I'll just put fun sayings and pictures. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and we'll include that link in the show notes as well. So sure. I'll get that from you after the show. So if anybody doesn't save the chat, we can we can include that in the show notes. Uh, Ken, how about you? Um, so pretty much, I just want to say that uh, the AMC show based on my stories, Pentium, is coming out uh, either later this year or next year. So keep an eye out for that. Um, I have my... Um, the third volume in my epic fantasy series, uh, the Dungeon Dynasty coming out this November. So I'm excited about that. You can always follow me on my website, uh, which is kendu.name, and I will put that in the chat. Um, and I have a newsletter, so you can sign up uh, and uh, get my uh, publication and ad adaptation news and uh, whatever other random tidbits I put in. Thank you. Awesome. So to all of our listeners, uh, we're going to be back next week uh, with the season finale. We're going to be talking about chapbooks and anthologies. So sign up is open for that. Uh, Phil, Ken, again, thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. See you all next week.